This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is knowing yourself and your gifts. In the first half, Peggy Worthen and her husband, BYU President Kevin Worthen, share two addresses, spiritual gifts and knowing who you are. Then in the second half, Elder Robert C. Oaks speaks on understand who you are. Here is Sister Peggy Worthen. On Christmas Eve several years ago, the Kim family, who were members of our ward, stopped by our home to give us a gift. They are from Korea, and they are incredibly talented. Sister Kim is a pianist, Brother Kim plays the flute, and each of their children play a stringed instrument. They are all accomplished musicians. That Christmas Eve, they entered our home with their instruments in tow, with the exception of Sister Kim, who used our piano. Their gift to us was a musical performance of Christmas carols in our living room. Words cannot adequately express how beautiful and heavenly it was. I have to admit that I was a little sad when they concluded their performance. Imagine my joy when the following Christmas Eve, the Kim family stopped by our home to perform again. This time, however, when they were packing up their instruments to leave, Brother Kim informed us that they would return the following Christmas Eve to perform. But they expected us to be prepared to perform something for them. Of course, we wanted them to return, so we agreed. After they left our home, Kevin and I quickly assessed our situation. We had one year to come up with something very special that we could perform for the Kim family, and we knew that in reality we really needed much longer than a year. After some thought, however, Kevin and I decided that we could sing a Christmas carol for them in Korean. We chose Silent Night because it was one song I thought I could play on the piano while everyone else sang. Then we asked a friend who served his mission in Korea to write out the words for Silent Night phonetically in Korean so that we would have at least a chance to, of pronouncing the, word, the Korean words correctly. When the next Christmas Eve arrived, our little choir which consisted of our family and friends who were at our home that night, practiced the songs a few times before the Kims arrived. We were as prepared as we could be for our performance. The Kims arrived, and after waiting a whole year, it was finally time for us to perform for them. I sat down nervously at the piano, and our choir began singing Silent Night in Korean. We managed to get through the first line of the song just fine. The Kims sat and listened politely, then we made it through the second line just fine, too. The Kims sat with pleasant looks on their faces. I knew that we were on the home stretch, and I was feeling pretty good about our performance. And that's when it happened. You know the part of Silent Night that goes, sleep in heavenly peace? Well, as soon as the choir sang the word sleep, every member of the Kim family who had been sitting there watching and listening to us very quietly, respectfully, and graciously burst out in delightful glee. It was at that moment the Kim family realized we were singing in Korean. <laughs> Evidently, prior to that moment, they had no idea what language we were attempting to sing. There are people we know who have gifts and talents that are very obvious, like the Kim family, and others like us whose gifts and talents may not be so obvious. For example, we obviously had neither the gift of music nor the gift of tongues. 
but we still had the gift to appreciate the music and the talents of others. Obvious or not, however, we all have been given gifts and talents. As stated in the Doctrine and Covenants, there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. To some is given one, and to some is given another, that, it, that all may be profited thereby. Note that no one is excluded. Every man and woman is given at least one gift, and, is li and it is likely many more. One of the things I would urge you to do this semester is to seek to discover and develop previously undiscovered gifts you may possess. The 46th section of the Doctrine and Covenants lists a number of specific gifts that God's children may be given. To some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To others it is given to believe on their words. To some it is given to know the differences of administration and it is given to some to know the diversities of operations. To some is given the word of wisdom, to another is given the word of knowledge. To some it is given to have faith to be healed, and to others it is given the, to have the faith to heal. And again, to some is given the working of miracles, and to others it is given to prophesy, and to others the discerning of spirits, and again it is given to some to speak with tongues, and to Another is given the interpretation of tongues. The list is quite extensive, long enough to give us hope that we might have at least one of those gifts. But it is clear that as long as that list is, it is not exhaustive. Elder Marvin J. Ashton taught that there are other gifts that are not so evident, but nevertheless real and valuable. Among the less conspicuous gifts Elder Ashton identified were the gift of asking, the gift of listening, the gift of hearing and using a still small voice, the gift of being able to weep, the gift of avoiding contention, the gift of being agreeable, the gift of avoiding vain repetition, the gift of seeking that which is righteous, the gift of not passing judgment, the gift of looking to God for guidance, the gift of being a disciple, the gift of caring for others, the gift of being able to ponder, the gift of offering prayer, and the gift of bearing a mighty testimony. I am confident that there are even more of these kinds of overlooked and underappreciated gifts given to each of us. As Bruce R. McConkie once stated, spiritual gifts are endless in number and infinite in variety. So the question is, how do we find and develop our particular talents, especially those we may not be currently aware of? The 46th section provides two keys for this endeavor. First, we are to seek earnestly the best gifts. We can pray and ask God to help us discover and develop our gifts. One way to do that is by being more aware of the things we need to progress and by using God directly for help in recognizing and responding to that need. President George Q. Cannon admonished that, If any of us are imperfect, it is our duty to pray for the gift that will make us perfect. No man ought to say, Oh, I cannot help this. It is my nature. He is not justified in it for the reason that God has promised to give strength to correct these things and to give gifts that will eradicate them. If a man lacks wisdom, it is his duty to ask God for wisdom. We were fortunate to have our family with us during the Christmas holiday. Our six-year-old granddaughter Ainsley was always willing to bless the food when asked. I noticed that each time she prayed, she would include in her prayer, Please bless me with the gift of honesty. 
When I asked for per her permission to use her example in my talk, I inquired why she was using, asking for this particular gift. She told me that she was having a problem with telling the truth and that her father told her that she could pray for help. She excitedly told me that since she has been praying for the gift of honesty, she is doing much better at telling the truth. Not only is she gaining the gift of honesty through her earnest plea for help, she is gaining the gift of faith in knowing that her prayers will be answered as she puts her trust in Heavenly Father. Earnestly seeking to know what gifts we need by asking God will often help us discover and develop previously unknown gifts that God is willing to bless us with. The 46th section indicates that in addition to seeking earnestly after our unique gifts, we need to always remember for what they were given which is for the benefit of those who love me and keep my commandments, and him that seeketh to do so that all may be profited thereby. Our gifts are given to, the, to benefit others. If we want to discover and develop our gifts, we have to be willing to share them with others. The Kim family was blessed with the gift of music in such great measure, in part because they were willing to share with others, including those like us, who lacked that particular gift. As we look for opportunities to uplift and bless others, we will likely find new gifts and talents that were lying dormant, just waiting to be discovered through service. Finally, one of the things which may keep us from discovering and developing our gifts is that we sometimes unfairly compare our seemingly inadequate talents to the refined gifts of others. Elder Ashton made the observation that one of the great tragedies of life is when a person classifies himself as someone who has no talents or gifts. For us to conclude that we have no gifts when we judge ourselves by stature, intelligence, grade point average, power, position, or external appearance is not only unfair but unreasonable. Our experience with the Kims made clear that we did not have the same gift of music that they had developed so well. However, we could still appreciate and be uplifted by the beautiful music that the Kims shared and that was its own gift that edified both us and the Kims. May we all experience the joy of discovering and developing the many gifts God has granted us individually. Is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Let me begin with a story that may sound all too familiar to some of you. The airport had been packed for hours. The usually crowded holiday travel conditions were exacerbated by weather-related delays and cancellations at other airports. Hundreds of frustrated travelers were scrambling from one gate to another as they sought alternate ways to reach their destinations. At one gate, the line to talk to the agent stretched for more than 50 yards. One of the passengers in the line was a well-dressed and obviously impatient man. As he glanced at his watch with ever-increasing frequency and tapped his foot at an ever-increasing rate, it was obvious to all around him that he was not a person who was accustomed to waiting. Finally, the man could stand it no longer. He bolted from his place in line and stomped up to the gate. Pounding his hand on the desk, he bellowed, Do you know who I am? An awkward silence instantly gripped the area. The agent at the desk calmly picked up her telephone and in a steady voice said, we may need a little additional help at gate 19. There's a man down here who doesn't know who he is. <laughs> My question to you today is, do you know who you are? 
This question may be more complicated than it at first appears. If someone were to ask you right now who you are, some of you might answer by identifying yourself as a BYU student, a worthwhile identity. Others might be more specific and identify themselves by their major or their year in school. Some would answer based on their home or place of origin. Those of you from Texas know what I mean. <laughs> Some might identify themselves by an extracurricular activity in which they engage, a sport they play, or a talent they possess. Some might choose to identify themselves by their church calling, an office they hold, or by relationships with others, such as wife, husband, father, or mother. Each of these answers would be truthful in the sense that they accurately describe a portion of who you are. And to some extent, they may be the most appropriate response because of the context in which the question is asked. Our response to the question, who are you, will likely vary from time to time and place to place, and sometimes those answers in the abstract will contradict one another. Thus, knowing who we really are can get a bit complicated. But what if you had to fully identify yourself in a single sentence? Could you, in one sentence, describe yourself in a way that would be accurate in whatever circumstance or whatever stage of life you might find yourself? It wouldn't be that you are a freshman, for that will change, or that you are a BYU student, for that will also change, even though there are times when graduation seems an eternity away. Such a statement of who you really are would need to describe your fully defined being in a way that is not dependent on time or temporary circumstances. That kind of answer to the question of who you are is a bit more challenging to provide. Fortunately, prophets, seers, and revelators have provided one example of such an answer in the family, a proclamation to the world. The family proclamation clearly declares that each of us is a beloved spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Now, most of us are familiar with that statement as we, have recall, as we have recited and sung portions of it since our primary days. Yet I wonder if familiarity has caused us to overlook the depth, breadth, and power of the truths this identity statement contains. Note, for example, that the description is universal. It applies to everyone in this audience, everyone on this campus, every person who lives on this earth, and to all who have lived or will ever live on this earth and on worlds without number. Each is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents with a divine nature and destiny. Note also that the description transcends time, referring to our past, our present, and our future. It describes our beginning. As President Marion G. Romney once observed, in origin, men and women are sons and daughters of God. The spirits of men and women are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Through that birth process, self-existing intelligence was organized into individual spirit beings. It then goes on to describe a key feature of our present state, our divine nature. Within each one of us, regardless of our own unique circumstances, challenges, and even mistakes we have made, there is currently an essence of the divine. It is part of our nature, a part of who we are that does not change. Our grade point average may dip below 3.0 or 2.0 or even 1.0. We may not have been on a date for months or years. We may consider ourselves unlovable. We may have just lost our temper with someone we love. We may have been hurt by someone else, but we still have a divine nature. It is part of who we are now. The statement also describes what can be our future, our divine destiny, our ability through the exercise of our agency made possible by Christ through His atoning sacrifice to become like our heavenly parents. 
Finally, note that in each of these three time periods, past, present, and future, the common reference point is God. Because He begat our spirits in the past, we currently partake of His divine nature, and we can ultimately become like Him. If we want to fully know who we are, we must first gain some understanding of who God is. As Joseph Smith explained, if men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. Understanding that we are children of heavenly parents, sharing their divine nature and possessing the potential to be like them can bring great power into our lives. The prophet Moses learned this important point early in his ministry. In the revelation recorded in Moses chapter 1, Moses is caught up into an exceedingly high mountain to visit with God. God first introduces himself to Moses by informing Moses of some of God's attributes. Once having established who he is, God then informs Moses about Moses. Behold, he says in verse 4, Thou art my son. In verse 6, he emphasizes that relationship again, telling Moses, I have a work for thee, my son. In verse 7, he refers to their kinship one more time. This one thing I show unto thee, my son. Clearly, God wanted Moses to understand at the outset not only who he, God, was, but also Moses' relationship to him. And the reason God wanted Moses to have this critical information quickly becomes apparent as the story unfolds. As soon as God leaves Moses to himself, Satan appears to tempt Moses, as he often does when important things are about to happen in our lives. Moses' response to the temptation is revealing. Who art thou, Moses inquires of Satan, for behold, I am a son of God. Moses' understanding of his direct relationship to God gave him the power to resist, to resist Satan's tempta temptation and eventually the power to banish him from his life. It can similarly give us the power to deal with the inevitable ups and downs of college life and the other vicissitudes that are part of our mortal existence. When asked, how can we help those struggling with a personal challenge, President Nelson once instructed, teach them their identity and their purpose. There is great power in understanding who we truly are. Now, there are two particular words in the Family Proclamation Statement of Identity that can easily be overlooked but which contain profound truths that sooner or later all of us need to understand more fully. The first word is beloved. We are not just sons and daughters of Heavenly Parents. We are beloved sons and daughters. Because we are literally His offspring, His crowning creation, God loves us more deeply than we can comprehend. His sole purpose, His supreme joy, His work and His glory comes from seeing us succeed. As C.S. Lewis put it, we are not made primarily that we may love God, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. It is easy to underestimate God's love for us. Indeed, with our finite minds and imperfect bodies, it is impossible for us to fully comprehend it in this stage of our existence. Yet there is no aspect of God's character that is more central to His divine nature and none more critical to the development of our faith in Him. God's love for us is so much a part of what makes Him God that the ancient apostle John taught that God is love. God loves each one of us with a love that is greater, more powerful, and more constant than we fully appreciate. We should feel His love more often than we do. And as we feel that love more fully, it should and will change us. Indeed, God requires that we be changed by His love. A new commandment I give unto you, Christ taught, that ye love one another as I have loved you. In order to more fully understand God's love for us, we should take care that we do not unintentionally reverse the commandment that we love others as God loves us. 
that we not focus so much on our own imperfections that we believe that God's love is like ours instead of believing that our love can become like God's. As strange as that statement may sound, I believe there are many who underestimate the reach and constancy of God's perfect love for us because they analogize it to the less than perfect love we can muster for our fellow beings, thereby figuratively dragging God's celestial love down to the telestial level at which our love currently operates. In its most common form, this reversal of the commandment manifests itself in the mistaken belief that if God really loved us, our lives would be free from much of the toil we experience in life, or in the related erroneous belief that the fact that we struggle in life is a sign that either God's love for us is diminished or that we have failed to merit it and are therefore beyond its reach. This misunderstanding is so common that for some it is a stumbling block to believing that God exists. If God loves His children and if He is all-powerful, some ask, why do so many of His children suffer? To these skeptics, the existence of pain, sorrow, and injustice in the world conclusively establishes that not only does God not love us, He does not exist at all. But as C.S. Lewis explained, the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble as long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love. In that regard, Lewis asserts, we often confuse God's love with human kindness. To quote Lewis, There is kindness in love, but love and kindness are not coterminous. Kindness merely as such cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. Many of us want a God who is kind, by which kindness we mean the desire to see others happy. Not happy in this way or in that, but just happy. What would really satisfy us, Lewis continues, would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. <laughs> a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. But that is not God's plan for us. He loves us more than that. He wants us to become like Him. He wants us to experience the fullness of joy He enjoys, and He loves us enough that He will do whatever it takes for us to reach that goal, including allowing His Son to suffer indescribable pain for us and including allowing us to experience, experience challenges in our lives. God loves us so much that He is willing to let us experience things that are hard, difficult, and soul-stretching. And He does it not because He does not love us, but precisely because He does. Now, this does not mean that every struggle we experience, that every hurt we bear, is inflicted on us by God. Many of our own challenges are the result of our own bad choices or those of others. Agency is an inevitable part of the plan. God does not promise that every choice we or others make will be consistent with His will, but He does promise that we, He can make everything we experience work together for our good. He can make all our soul-stretching experiences, regardless of their source, part of the process by which we can become like Him, and that is His goal, because He loves us so much. That leads to the second key word in the identity statement in the Family Proclamation, destiny. We not only have a divine nature, we have a divine or godly destiny. Because we are literally their offspring, we possess the power to become like our heavenly parents. That knowledge can also transform and empower us. President Henry B. Eyring recently shared a personal example of this truth with the students at the LDS Business College. He related how he felt overwhelmed when taking some physics and math classes as an undergraduate. He said, 
As time wore on, my discouragement led me to feel that it was useless to study. I began to think of quitting and doing something easier. It was on a night during that time of discouragement, President Eyring explained, when I received the help that made all the difference for me. Help came as a voice, an actual voice in my mind. The words voiced were these, when you realize who you really are, you will be sorry that you didn't try harder. President Eyring continued, I didn't know then all that those words meant, but I knew then what to do. I went to work. I felt that I must have more ability to learn than I could see in myself. He continued, I began to try to understand that message of encouragement. By pondering and working during the years that followed, I came to realize who I really was. I was a spirit child of God. I had inherent in me the potential to learn what He knows. Because of the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and my faith in Him, my sins could be washed away, and I could receive the gift of the Holy Ghost as a companion. And I came to know that by the power of the Holy Ghost we may know the truth of all things. President Eyring stated that this experience and others like it gave him the confidence to keep trying harder even when the learning was difficult. That can be true with you as well. But there will still be times when the gap between the godlike state that is our destiny and our current imperfect state appears so immense that it seems overwhelming. At times we may find ourselves surrounded by constant reminders that we are falling short. When that happens, let me suggest three things we can do to retain or regain the eternal perspective that changes the knowledge of our potential from a burden into a blessing. First, we need to recognize and remember that we are not alone in our struggles. God has placed others in our lives to help sustain us. It may include parents, siblings, roommates, or friends who may be praying and rooting for your success. But it will also include others whom you can serve. There are few more powerful antidotes to feeling inadequate than serving others in need. When you are struggling, if you will spend more time thinking about what you can do for someone else and less about your own limitations, you will find that your confidence in yourself and in God's ability to work through you will increase. Doing God-like acts of service enables us to both become more like God and to feel in greater measure His love for us. More importantly, even if you feel completely bereft of human companionship, remember that you are never truly alone. Because of His great atoning sacrifice, Christ knows how we feel and He knows how to succor and strengthen us. Because of His great love for us, which mirrors exactly that of the Father, He will not, He cannot abandon us as long as we let Him in our lives. Second, we need to be more patient with the process. We need to worry less about the speed at which we are moving and more about the direction. We will not fully realize our divine potential in this life. And while we need to make wise use of our time in our mortal existence, we should remember that God does not deal with time in the same way we do. In fact, time as we understand it may not bind Him at all. As Al Alma noted, time only is measured unto man. Because speed is a measure of distance over time, if time becomes less relevant, so does speed. Thus, in eternal things such as our ongoing progress in becoming like God, direction is m more important than speed. In the long run, the direction we are headed matters much more than the rate at which we are moving. If we become frustrated because we are not progressing as fast as we feel we should, we need to remember that we progress line upon line, precept on precept, here a little, there a little. The key is to make sure we are headed in the right direction. From time to time, this will require a course correction. 
That is what we call repentance, which is really just a turning back toward God to go in the right direction. If we will continue to head in the right direction, God will make up the difference in His own time. Finally, and most importantly, when we are feeling overwhelmed in our quest for perfection, we need to return to the first truth in the identity statement of the Family Proclamation. We are beloved sons and daughters of heavenly parents. God loves us. That is a fundamental truth on which our accurate understanding of who we really are is based. As Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf testified in this most recent General Conference, God knows you. You are His child. He loves you. Even when you think that you are not lovable, He reaches out to you. Indeed, as Elder Bruce C. Haven once observed, we never have more value in the Lord's sight than when we are feeling completely worthless. In those moments when you wonder if you can make it, when the challenges seem too much, I urge you to turn to God. More specifically, I plead with you to find a time and a place when you can, in all honesty, ask God what He really thinks of you. Don't assume anything. Don't assume you are worthless, that He is displeased with you, or that He has given up on you. Ask instead with real intent the simple question, Father, what do you think of me? Who am I to you? I am confident that if you are open, you will be pleasantly surprised by the answer. You will find the truth shared by the ancient apostle Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Or I would add a bad test grade, an angry comment, a failed relationship? The answer is an emphatic no. Like Paul, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are a child of God, a beloved spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents. Because of that, each of you has a divine nature and destiny. These statements are true. May they be ever in your mind and heart is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is knowing yourself and your gifts. We've just heard from BYU President Kevin J. Worthen and his wife, Sister Peggy Worthen. After the break, we'll return with Elder Robert C. Oaks for Understanding Who You Are. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today's theme is knowing yourself and your gifts. Next, we'll hear from Elder Robert C. Oaks of the Presidency of the Seventy at the time of this address with Understand Who You Are. During our assignment in the Africa Southeast Area Presidency, Elder Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles came down to conduct an area training session. During that session, Elder Nelson made a statement that resonated in my heart then and continues to do so today. He said, Understand who you are in God's plan. This is a powerful concept that should be a major objective of our life here in mortality, to understand who we are in God's plan. What a sweet blessing it is to come to know, to gain by testimony by the power of the Holy Ghost, that there is a God and that He has a plan with an exalted purpose for each of His children. It is also a very powerful personal driver 
to be able to accept that we each can have a particular role to play in this plan. And this brings us to your unique BYU opportunity. While here, you owe it to yourself to make an extra effort to discover in every detail possible who you really are, to discover your true potential and your eternal potential in God's plan. Now, the vast majority of you came to BYU with a foundation in the basic doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Consequently, you should have a solid understanding of your eternal potential. You know you are a child of God, a daughter or son of a loving Father who has structured a glorious plan for the salvation and happiness of each of his children. You understand that in pre-mortal councils we were in the presence of our Father in Heaven, where his plan was presented to all of his children. We accepted his plan. Jesus Christ was there and became the leading advocate for the plan, the objective of which is to provide all of God's children the opportunity to come to earth, obtain a body, and during our period of mortal probation prove ourselves in faith, repentance, obedience, and enduring to the end. We accepted that we would one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and be judged on our performance during our period of mortal probation. Those found worthy would be exalted and would dwell eternally in the presence of the Father and the Son with, <clears throat> with eternal family relationships prevailing. All others would be assigned to lesser kingdoms of glory. You also know that in order to give life and vitality to his plan and because of his perfect love for each of his children, this loving Father offered up his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that through his atoning sacrifice in Gethsemane and on the cross at Calvary, he would become the Savior of all mankind, the eternal hope of the world. Through his sacrifice, he would ensure resurrection from the grave for all, as well as provide the opportunity for forgiveness for every repentant soul. You know that without a Savior there is no plan of salvation and happiness, because there can be no expectation for resurrection, nor for forgiveness, and thus no hope for perfection and celestial worthiness, no hope of dwelling eternally in the presence of God as a celestial being, no hope of enjoying the promised fullness of joy, which is an integral part of celestial existence. What a blessing it is to have this solid, revealed-from-on-high doctrine as a foundation upon which to build our lives and as a foundation for our trust and hope in eternal happiness, a foundation for our faith and hope that our Father in Heaven has made such happiness available to His sons and daughters. But are these glorious, majestic understandings enough? They are certainly critical to our underpinnings for our eternal progression. But to reach our eternal and divine potential, I think they are only the beginning. We are each individuals with singular talents, strengths, opportunities, and challenges. We are as individual as, our, as are our fingerprints or our DNA. Unfortunately, we cannot discover our individuality by just rolling our finger on an ink pad and then on a clean sheet of paper or by spitting on a glass laboratory slide as we can with our fingerprints and our DNA. 
We believe we are foreordained to come to earth at a particular time, into particular circumstance, and that our particular set of gifts, attitudes, and talents, if properly developed and employed, will enable us to fulfill our foreordained purpose. Elder Henry B. Eyring of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles tells a tender personal story that makes this point in a penetrating way, I believe. As a teenager, his family moved from a very comfortable environment for young Elder Eyring to a location that, he was, that was not to his liking nor his satisfaction. He sulked for a bit until the Spirit spoke directly to him about who he was in God's plan and how he ought to proceed. One day the Spirit instructed, When you find out who you are, you will be sorry you didn't try harder. Now, I suspect that this spiritual admonition for more diligent effort is probably appropriate for most of us. The Lord will lead us in our particular role if we will seek and follow his guidance. Christ himself is the greatest example of understanding who he was and the full magnitude of his mortal and eternal potential. His success during his mortal probation is in part a reflection of this understanding. As a 12-year-old boy who had been left behind at the temple, he reproved his worrying parents. How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? Christ's ministry is filled with statements highlighting his complete understanding of his mortal and his eternal destiny. In the 18th chapter of John, Pilate asks Christ, Art thou a king then? To which Christ replied, Thou sayest that I am a king? To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. In the 16th chapter of John, Christ demonstrates this same remarkable degree of self-awareness when he states, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Close quote. In fact, everything we know about Christ suggests that he understood exactly who he was and exactly what he was expected to do in his life. And thanks be to God, he did it. For us to move in the desired direction for our own life, we must come to know ourselves, to study and stretch and test ourselves, and to ponder the results of our stretching and our testing and our other observations. We need to become familiar with our own set of gifts and talents. There is no better place on earth, no any better time to carry on this get-acquainted-with-yourself process than as a student here at BYU. Now, why is this getting-to-know-yourself process so important? Because it will enable you to do more with your life. It will permit you to come closer to realizing your full potential. It will let you build on and use your strengths, your gifts, and your talents to carry out your purpose in God's plan. It will help you to overcome your weaknesses and avoid your vulnerabilities. We pray to God to, quote, suffer us not to be led into temptation. Shouldn't we do our best to know our weaknesses so that we can help God lead us not into our own personal set of temptations? When considering one's gifts and talents, it's important to first acknowledge that everyone has gifts. I believe this is a truth with both temporal gifts and with spiritual gifts. 
Now, regarding spiritual gifts, the scriptures are very clear on the subject. 46th section of the Doctrine and Covenants highlights for us that everyone is given a spiritual gift, and it enumerates these gifts. Quote, Seek ye earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they are given. They are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all of my commandments. And him that seeketh so to do, for all have not every gift given unto them. For there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. To some is given one, to some is given another, that all may be profited thereby. Then after a listing of <clears throat> many of these gifts, it, is, it concludes, And all of these gifts come from God for the benefit of the children of God. Now ponder for a moment the beautiful gospel principle disclosed in this scripture. In a world so filled with despairing souls, lacking a sense of personal wealth, worth, it is most uplifting to know that each one of us is endowed from on high with at least one spiritual gift. We ought to be striving to discover our spiritual gifts. When we know them, we can polish them, hone them, and use them to bless the lives of those about us. The parable of the talents, as recorded in Matthew 25, clearly makes the doctrinal point that the Lord expects us to use whatever gifts and talents with which he has blessed us. You'll recall the story. A wealthy man planning to travel gave one servant five talents, which the servant promptly <coughs> doubled through the wise, his wise management. To the second servant, the wealthy man gave two talents, which he also doubled through his prudence. To the third servant, he gave only one talent, which he promptly buried to ensure its security. Upon his return, the wealthy man praised the two wise managers for their prudent use of their assigned portions, and he rewarded them bountifully. On the other hand, the servant who had failed to magnify his calling and hid his portion in the ground, he was relieved of his talent, left with none, and cast into outer darkness midst a weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Lord expects us to take whatever he has given us and to build upon it, to expand it and use it and to share it. He expects us to bless the lives of others through our gifts and in so doing, bless our own lives. One of the purposes of patriarchal blessings is to help us identify our special gifts and talents. Through these blessings, the Lord can help us focus our attention and awareness on particular fields or interests in which we are especially adept. These blessings can serve a very important role in helping us to understand who we are in God's plan. We should read them carefully, reread them, and then endeavor to live our lives in such a way that the Lord can bless us with all of the blessings he has promised us. I believe that temporal gifts are much the same story as spiritual gifts. We each have temporal gifts. We just have to uncover and polish them so that we may experience joy and satisfaction in using them throughout our lives. Some of these gifts are special aptitudes for music, for teaching, for learning, for athletics, for administration, etc., etc., etc. University years are a time to find out and cultivate these gifts. This is why we take aptitude and other interest tests to discover what is possible given our native abilities and inclinations. This is the main reason why we have general education courses, to broaden our perspective and to expose us to a variety of disciplines, to see if they might be attractive and interesting to us. This is why we have majors and minors to polish particularly interesting gifts, 
which we might want to use throughout our lives, not just in our work, but also in our church, our community, and our family service endeavors. These tests and introductory courses are an important part of your getting-to-know-yourself portion of your university experience. Now, the social experience on campus is also an important part of the getting-to-know-yourself part of your collegiate life. It is much more than just one big spouse search. It's an opportunity to buff off a few personality burrs that may have slipped through your high school days. It's a time to gain a better insight into such personal personality traits as toleration for stress, capacity for work, need for privacy, and innumerable other characteristics of your individuality. This self-awareness lets you make wiser choices regarding dates and mates, vocations and locations. Now, I repeat, this is a good time to find out and to find and polish your gifts and your talents. It ought to be a conscious objective that you find out and obtain the most of your in your undergraduate years. It can be a very important part of your quest to understand who you are in God's plan. Our particular role in God's plan is in part a reflection of these talents and gifts. The parable of the talents was not given to us for our entertainment, but rather for our spiritual instruction. It's indicative of an eternal principle that is often summed up where much is given, much is expected. Our gifts and our talents are important elements of our true and complete identity. They are important factors in determining our role in God's plan. Now, let me give you a couple of examples from the life that I know the best, my own. In high school, I thought I was a pretty good athlete, and I wanted to play college ball. I went out for football here at BYU, promptly got cut. Then I went out for basketball, promptly got cut. I didn't bother with baseball and tennis. I wasn't con- but I wasn't convinced of my limitations, even though everyone else seemed to be fully aware of them. <laughs> I-, <clears throat> I went off to the Air Force Academy. One of my driving factors was I wanted another go at collegiate athletics. And with only 300 cadets on the campus at that time, odds were much better. So I played football and basketball and baseball my first year in Colorado. But my maturing introspection capacity and knee surgery made me realize that I was quite, quite mediocre on my better days. And based on that realization, I made some adjustments to my life goals. And I've enjoyed a lifetime of participating in sports. But I was able to measure success and happiness in terms of participation rather than in excellence of performance. This is a time to discover talents and interests that will be of satisfaction to you for the rest of your lives. Now, when I was a freshman here at BYU, Janie Thompson, a BYU legend in finding and developing musical talent, asked me if I'd participate in a song and dance number that she was producing for some conference. I agreed. But after a few practices, Janie said, "Uh, Bob, I like your enthusiasm, but you're not much of a singer. Well, since then, I've not sought opportunities to stand in front of audiences and sing, but I found numerous rewards for enthusiasm. But through all of this, I did learn that I could work as hard as almost anyone. I was... That was not a native skill. My dad taught me how to work, and all of my life I've been able to keep up with the hardest workers. That became one of my most important lessons from my college life. Your successes highlight your gifts. Your disappointments highlight your limitations. And these are very important lessons that impact directly upon who you are in God's plan. 
These lessons play a major role in helping you to determine your true identity. One of the great blessings of understanding our true eternal identity as a child of God is that our personal sense of self-worth can only be high. There are no born losers in God's frame of reference. He loves each one of his children. We are each his son or daughter with the potential to become like him. In the gospel plan based on moral agency, if we fail, it is because we make choices which lead to failure. But in that same light, we can make choices which will lead to our marvelous success. One of the great beauties of the gospel is that critical decisions are ours for the making. Now, we have talked in some detail about the importance of understanding who we are and the magnitude of our divine potential. Let's briefly discuss a significant threat to our achieving this potential. Today, we receive many warnings about identity theft. Some of you may have already experienced this trauma. In our cybernetic world of trust and rapid transmission of personal data, medical, financial, and all other types of data, we're very vulnerable to theft and exploitation of our identifying details. Consequently, billions of dollars are spent each year on on identity security systems, and they're not always successful. We can be defrauded of significant amounts of money by identity thieves. Several years ago, Sister Oaks and I were traveling while we were assigned in Europe. At the end of one month, we received a $20,000 credit card bill after we'd spent about $35 in a particular city. Crooks had our numbers, and they were throwing them around with reckless abandon. That was our introduction to identity theft. The credit card company stood behind the debt, but it was quite frightening to see how helpless we were to prevent the thievery of our identity. Now, theft of our numerical mortal identity can be costly and cause us a great deal of misery. But the theft of our eternal identity has much longer impacts and more dire consequences. Now, I'm not talking about addresses, credit card security, or any other identifying numbers. I'm talking about something much more basic and more important than who the world thinks you are. I'm talking about who you think you are. Let's talk briefly about the possibility of theft of your eternal identity. We know we are sons and daughters of God with the potential to become like him, as described in his plan of happiness. We know this potential is achieved through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and through obedience to the eternal laws and principles embedded in his gospel. We also know that Satan is totally dedicated to thwarting and derailing all of this marvelous plan of happiness, knowledge, and process. We know that one of his primary tools is to entice us to forget who we really are, to fail to realize or to forget our divine potential. This is the cruelest form of identity theft. Now, how does Satan do it? He's quite straightforward and predictable. First, he attempts to prompt our doubts in our minds about our divine potential. He cultivates doctrine and the world that imply we are much less than we really are. He undermines our faith and thus our self-confidence in our ability to achieve our potential. And even if we do understand and accept it, he still cultivates this doubt. He strives to bring us to a mindset in which we believe that we individually are not good enough to ever achieve our celestial goals. In this same vein, Satan seeks to convince us that we are so bad that even the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not sufficient to reach down to our lowly depths 
and to draw us up unto our Savior. He tempts us in paths that seem to verify his cynicism about our grand and glorious potential. He then hedges his bets by surrounding us with the gaudy, glitzy filth of pornography and other forms of immorality, and and thus precludes our being led in saintly paths by this Holy Spirit. He's a clever fellow with many clever tricks to make us forget who we really are, sons and daughters of God with divine potential. Now let's summarize Satan's basic method of operation. He strives to make us forget who we are. By cheap, temporary imitations of true and lasting joy, he dims our memory and fogs our testimony. Through the false gods of expensive toys, unbridled passions, honors and praises of the world, and fleeting pleasures, he leads us away from the divine promise of eternal, lasting fullness of joy. We do not understand. We cannot comprehend completely the promised fullness of joy. We have to accept its wonder and its beauty on faith. The term is really quite descriptive. Fullness implies there is no room for more joy. The scriptural promises are breathtaking. 76th section of Dr. Covenants, the 93rd section, are as explicit as I think we can expect and as we need. 93rd section, for man is spirit, the elements are eternal, and spirit and element inseparably connected, receive a fullness of joy. 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And thus we saw the glory of the celestial, which excels in all things, where God, even the Father, reigns upon his throne forever and ever. They who dwell in his presence are the church of the firstborn, and they see as they are seen and know as they are known, having received of his fullness and of his grace, and he makes them equal in power and in might and in dominion. Satan does not want us to understand and to focus on these marvelous descriptions and promises of our divine potential. But the Lord certainly does want us to focus on them and to ponder their meaning in our lives. They're clearly worth some pondering time. If we will solve our pondering with scriptures such as we have just read, we can refresh our commitment to move forward and upward on our plan of happiness track. Let's take a moment and review where we have come this morning. Our eternal Father in heaven has a plan of salvation and happiness for us. Jesus Christ, the only begotten in the flesh Son of God, is the center of this plan by virtue of his atoning sacrifice. We have a central role in this plan of happiness by virtue of our divine parentage. To fulfill our role in this plan, it's important for us to seek to to come to understand ourselves, our strengths, our weaknesses, and our gifts and talents, and to learn to use them in building up the kingdom of God. Satan will certainly try to derail us from this simple, straightforward, and supremely important course. He will attempt to make us forget who we are and what our divine potential is. And he will strive to this end until he is bound up during Christ's millennial reign. The Lord has provided us with countless scriptures and prophetic promptings to help us counter and resist these satanic pulls. One of the most powerful of these promptings is found in the fifth chapter of Helaman. Here Helaman, under the Lord's direction, is counseling his sons, Nephi and Lehi, and he repeatedly admonishes them to remember who they are and from whence their marvelous spiritual heritage comes. Helaman 5, verse 12. 
And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereupon, if men build, they cannot fall. This remembering is a very important principle to help us keep in mind our true identity. This is why we partake of the sacrament each week, to renew our covenants that we have made with the Lord in the waters of baptism, to remember Him, keep His commandments, to refresh in our minds who we are and what our role is in God's plan. This is why we go back to the temple to renew the covenants that we have made in those sacred halls and to remind ourselves of these covenants and obligations. When we thus remember these sacred obligations, Satan's storms and attacks will not turn us from our quest, from the pursuit of our divine potential. I pray that we may ever remember who we are, sons and daughters of a loving Father, with the potential to return to his side and dwell with him as celestial beings. I testify these things are true. I testify that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Redeemer, and that he stands at the head of this Church, guiding it through a living prophet, even Gordon B. Hinckley. And I offer this testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Knowing Yourself and Your Gifts, with thoughts from BYU President Kevin J. Worthen, his wife, Sister Peggy S. Worthen, as well as Elder Robert C. Oaks. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.